Welcome listeners to Sleep, Eat, Perform and Repeat. This is a podcast on high performance. It will be presented by myself, David Clancy, and my two co-hosts, Connor Gavin and Kieran Dunn. What we're striving to achieve here is figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why are they successful. Rate and review, share with your friends, but most importantly, enjoy. Welcome to Sleepy Perform Repeat, episode number 56. Today we spoke to Claire Murphy, storyteller, artist, trainer, and teacher of story, Irish myth, and folklore. Claire discusses co-creation and reactions of listeners during storytelling sessions that she does. We hear about how she got into the game and her journey to date, plus what awaits, and more. Storytelling is at the root of everything. Enjoy this one. Learn from it and share the story with your loved ones. Give her a follow at Story Claire on Instagram and other social media outlets. She is publishing stories during this global timeout. Thank you for listening. Hi, welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. We're joined online by Claire Murphy. I'll pass you over to David to introduce. So we're very much looking forward to having Claire on today. Claire would be renowned globally as a storyteller a very successful writer and also a teacher. And with that background, she has traveled to a lot of different places, shedding light on the power of storytelling. And that's where I first saw her speak at Leaders in Performance in Twickenham a couple of months ago. So we're grateful that you've come on the line. Claire, tell us a little bit about how you started off. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Um, How did I start off? Do you mean in the world or in the world of storytelling? I suppose the latter. <laughs> we don't know what our audience is like. <laughs> so I got started officially in 2006, but I'd say my interest in stories goes all the way back to my childhood. But in 2006, there was a bit of an artistic revolution in Galway. And I'd been looking into stories for about four years, five years at that point. I'd just been looking and talking and listening and going to festivals and trying to figure out what it was. And then my friends said, you know, you've been talking about this a long time. Why don't we start doing it? So it was really as straightforward as that. With the encouragement of my friends, I started a little storytelling evening at a friend's house. And from there, I started getting jobs. And one thing led to another. And very quickly, I was putting on events. And within a year, I was touring internationally. And tell us, what does it do for you? What do you enjoy the most about? I mean, when I was there in London... There was so much energy and passion, and obviously you distill that to the audience of 200, 250 people. Mm. What, what, what kind of buzz does it really give you? What does it do for you? It's amazing. It's so addictive. So I, I definitely get a high, a performance high every time. The other thing that I love is I love this co-creation that I go on with the audience. So obviously I've, I've done the research and I've got the story, but with, with storytelling, which is really different from film or theatre or writing or anything else, when I start talking, everyone in the audience starts seeing. So what I turn on is the cinema of the mind and everybody in the audience is seeing a different set of pictures in their heads. So you're having a collective creative experience, which is really important because we don't have very many collective experiences anymore in the world, as well as having a hyper individualistic experience. So everybody in the audience is seeing what, you know, what they can imagine. And that act of co-creation is quite empowering and intoxicating and then the last thing that I absolutely love is watching your faces when I'm telling 
<laughs> because this beautiful thing happens, doesn't matter if you're five or 55 or 105, but when human beings relax into listening to a story, this look of slack-jawed amazement, this kind of wide-eyed, the, 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 the man and the woman, the boy and the girl, they forget where they are. The body relaxes. You almost look dazed, you know? And it, I think it's because you're inside your own imaginations and you're inside a sense of wonder and you look incredible. You just look beautiful and relaxed in that moment. And then at the end, when I finish, watching everybody come back to themselves is really funny. You know, people then start, you know, looking around, making sure nobody saw how relaxed they were. And then they might start clapping or whatever. So I'd say those three things are what's kept me in the, in the field of storytelling. It's such, it's such an immersive and kind of rich experience, I suppose, for, for everybody that hears you eloquently speak about something, what brings them into that story. Yeah, and that's transport. That's transportation, right? So we get to. And this is why story is so effective. You get you get to travel in time and space without having to leave your seat, while using your own imagination to get there. And we really want that. We crave that as human beings. Storytelling is part of every major world religion. It's at the root of every single culture because we want to travel and face these amazing demons and adventures and things that will never happen in our real lives, as a way of testing ourselves. You know, testing the psyche. So if you, if you invite someone to go, if you invite them in the right way, they will go anywhere with you. And that's quite, that's quite something. Speaking of transportation, looking at transportation through time and your journey, it's been quite a journey, I'd say, from telling your friends stories to then moving to storytelling in front of 250 people in London. Mm. What, what have you learned? What's different about Claire Murphy today versus when you started? That's a huge question. Well, so, yeah, a lot is different. Uh, when I got started, I think I was paddling furiously just to try and learn as much as I could, as quickly as I could, you know, have enough stories to go on. And once I hit a repertoire of a certain number of stories, it became about the stagecraft. And now that I'm 14 years in, I'm always looking at how I can improve. That's a huge thing for me because there's, I always feel like a student, you know, I'm always learning. So what's different is I have a I have a you know much bigger repertoire than I did when I first got started. I'm really really comfortable in front of an audience. I mean I've I, the biggest audience I've ever played to was five thousand people, and I loved it. It was so much fun, you know, because there was just more energy to play with, and I'm much more aware now of what my body is doing and what my voice is doing and what my face is doing. And so my hope is that now, fourteen years in, I'm a lot more succinct. There's a lot more economy of language. I can hit deeper points in a story with, le- with, with what would seem like less work. There's more work, but it's more invisible. Hmm. It, it very much is an art. I mean, what even struck me when I was there in that audience listening to yourself was your use of pausing. Hmm. Yeah, figured we'd put in a pause there. Yeah. <laughs> it was effective. Um, <laughs> so what, what, what makes it an art form? Like what, Someone at your level. Okay, we're, we're here, we're running a podcast, we're trying to, I suppose, enwrap people's lives through story to make it interesting and fascinating and, and engaging. What, what do you do, kind of at the, say, the Champions League level of storytelling <laughs> that the two of us could learn from, besides what you said in terms of experiential knowledge you've acquired through the years? <sighs> that's, that's something. What can you do? I think anybody that turns their mind to it as an art form is starting to take it a lot more seriously. So there's this thing that, you know, people say everyone's a storyteller and that's, that's not true. 
everyone tells stories, but not everyone is a storyteller. So when you turn your mind to what is that craft, what is that art form? One of the big things that comes to mind, especially for somebody who makes podcasts, is how deeply you listen to audience. Because obviously, there's no audience in that room with you. Yet, I know that when you're out and about in the world, you're constantly looking for what are people going to want to hear about? What are the questions they're going to want me to ask? Is that tuning in to this? So there's this invisible space between you and your audience. It's very subtle. And it exists there when I'm in live performance, it exists, but it exists in all these other mediums as well. And it's how much you can tune into that space between you and your audience. I think that will make you more effective because you're no longer doing it just for yourself. You're doing it for this collective to serve this collective. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Do you feel then that maybe storytellers, as opposed to people telling stories, that you sort of see the world or look at the world through a different lens? Yeah. So storytellers are people for me um, who've inherited the tradition or who make their living at it, right? And lots of people use story in really effective ways. But um, yeah, storytellers are, are the ones that most storytellers I know have a, have a very interesting lens on the world. A lot of us think in terms of epochs, you know, we don't think in terms of decades or, you know, our, even our own lifetimes, because some of us are carrying stories that are 5,000 years old. So when you think about humanity in that, in that kind of range of time, thinking about a government that's only going to be in for five years, you know that they're going to, you know, wreak havoc. But at the same time, you know that they're a small part of a much larger play that's going on. So a story tells, we, we meet at festivals and, and on stages and when we're backstage, it's like, where have you been? And, you know, when Storyteller was, was telling me about being out in the Arab Emirates and, and you know, his comment, I said, what was it like? And his comment was so interesting. He was saying, well, 3% of the population are served by 97% of the population. And then we went on to have this big conversation around work and around sociology and anthropology and archaeology. So storytellers tend to think like that. They, they tend to think long term, which means that when we, when we go to a festival or go to a place like Leaders Conference and you're going to present a story, you're thinking about what story serves this situation at this moment in time. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I love the fact that as a storyteller, you can tap into that reservoir of all the way back to mythology, you know, and dating back through time and, and, and history, I suppose, where do you get, where do you get your ideas? What do you look for to enrich new content? So that kind of keeps it fresh for you. And so that you have new ideas coming to the fore as, as you're moving forward over the next couple of years. Well, there's, there's two, there's two questions in that, isn't there? So like, how do you keep old content fresh? And then where do the ideas come from? So the world is constantly sending ideas at us, I think, all the time. So I don't really, it's not that I don't struggle to get ideas. I, I'm, I'm just constantly aware of all of these ideas. There's this great quote by Mary Oliver, and, and she talks about the, I think it's the role of the artist, which is pay attention to the world, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. And that's what it feels like when it, when it comes to the ideas. Like I have hundreds of stories that I haven't told that I want to tell. In terms of stories that I've been telling, so there's some stories I've been telling for 14 years. Uh, I retire them when they get old. So as in, when they become tired of being told or I can feel myself getting tired of telling them, I'll retire them if I can't refresh them. But the art of refreshing them, and I touched on this at Leaders, is sometimes you have to tell the same story more than once. And if you don't delight in it, if you, if you don't take some level of interest in it, your audience won't delight in it. So the work is before it gets too tired, how do you keep invigorating it? So one of my teachers asked me 
because I'd reached this really static point in my career about five years in. I was really frustrated with my performances. And he said, well, what questions are you asking yourself? And I was so struck by that. I was like, well, you know, so when you, when I want to invigorate a story, I'll ask a different question about the story, which will allow me to find something new in it. Mm. So you've had loads of experiences across the world, not only the countries uh, near us. So has there been a particular moment um, that was maybe your favorite or was a highlight in your career so far? Yeah, I've, I've, I've got a few that come to mind. Um, one is I had the incredible honor of performing for President Mary Robinson when she was launching her books after she had stopped being president and moved on to the, the UN work. Um, and she was launching her book at an American university and I got to go to the dinner where she was, she was eating beforehand and tell a quick story, which was a massive honor. And then the other big highlight for me is I'm a, I'm a huge science fiction nerd. I've loved science fiction my entire life. And uh, I got invited to go to NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, a couple of years ago. And they'd seen a show I did at, at a national festival in America. So I made a show called Universe, which is a, a it's a it's a wonderful mad mix of quantum physics and mythology and Claire philosophy on life, you know. And they'd seen that and they had started talking to me about the need for science and story to work together. And I said, yeah, you know, absolutely. And they invited me to go and perform it. So I performed Universe at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It's a massive life highlight. That sounds very cool. Yeah. That's decent. All right. That's a good one. <laughs> you know, when you see it, when you see a large hangar, a large <laughs> building that has a door that is at least four stories high and you realize it's the garage for the spaceships. You know, yeah. that, that was me just standing there taking pictures, mouth yeah, hanging open. That's where the Millennium Falcon is parked. Exactly. <laughs> when they're contacting you, are they contacting you with NASA.com handles on your emails? <laughs> um, I, I'm afraid I can't divulge that information. <laughs> this is Cape Canaveral. Park, <laughs> Houston. <laughs> Houston, we have a storyteller coming in. Is that okay? <laughs> I know my friends are all saying, you're going to go tell stories in space. I was like, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> who, do you look, who do you look up to, Claire? If, if anyone, maybe, maybe your, your parents obviously mm. created an impact for you, or maybe there's, there's a role model or a mentor. Who kind of gives you that sort of energy? A lot of people. A lot of people in my life. Um, my mom and my dad, definitely, because they – when I was growing up, my dad was a, he was a civil servant by day and an actor by night. Uh, so sort of a modern superhero. And my mom uh, put herself through university when I was about, I think, 10. So she had four kids, put herself through university, did old English literature, as you do when you're not sleeping at all, you know, and having a, <laughs> a four kids, a university degree and an evening job, you know, and she's since become a poet just because she had some spare time, you know. Um, so I learned a lot from them and I, I realized much later in life uh, that my work ethic comes from them because I had seen them work quite hard when I was a little kid. I mean, I get, I get inspiration from a lot of people. So it was, there was a storyteller Well, he wasn't a storyteller. Actually, he never called himself a storyteller. There's a guy who passed away called John Moriarty who would call himself a gardener. That's what he would have called himself. And he had such a way with old Irish myth and that ended up being a bit of an initiation for me when I heard him in terms of people living. Yeah. There's lots of people that inspire me. They're not all in the field of storytelling, but there's some people in the States that I work with, like 
these are storytellers, Dovey Thompson, Kevin Kling, Bill Harley. And uh, we, we have a collective where, you know, we work together when we can, but I'm really inspired by the subjects that they tackle and the way they tackle them. And what sort of, what sort of subjects give us an idea, a ballpark as to, I like the, I love hearing that there's a group of you, a collective of storytellers coming together to, to talk, to, to shed stories on topics. What kind of topics do you guys talk about? Well, we, we, we came across each other at the festivals, you know, on the festival circuit, and we just realized that we all had very similar questions. Now, they're at it a lot longer than I am. We talk about everything. So what stories we found recently, what's inspiring us, what we're, what we're struggling with. We're, we're all concerned about the planet. We're all concerned about how we use our work to motivate and inspire people to act rather than this paralyzing, there's nothing we can do feeling. Um, and we, so we talk about the challenges of being a freelancer, the challenges of working alone. Uh, often storytellers work without directors. So our, you know, the integrity, how do you maintain your integrity on stage when when you don't have external eyes on it, uh, subject matters, you know, um, how you deal with really difficult subject matters when the audience are maybe going to wrestle a little bit with that. Uh, and then just cracking each other up as much as possible around, you know, stupid things we found and keeping company whenever we can. So we just had two, three days together. We haven't had one in a couple of years. And for solo artists, I think it's it's incredible. It's feast or famine. You know, you spend a lot of time alone and then when you get to hang out with other artists who are, who are really willing to talk about what they're going through, it, it just gives you company for the road for a good few more years, you know? So, yeah, they're they're important people to me. Very good. I'm sure a lot of preparation goes into delivering an excellent, enriching, enjoyable story for a group of people, be that five people or 5,000 people. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what, what you do for preparation, because, I mean, if you're a writer, an author, we talk about, um, you know, writer's block and things oh, of that nature. You, you don't want that to happen on stage when you're when everybody's there just to listen and mm-hmm. become part of your story. So what, what does Claire Murphy to get, do to get into that kind of headspace where, you know, you're in the zone? So there's, I think there's two, there's two things there. One is how do you prepare a piece? So how do you prepare a story, which is a long work? And then how do you prepare on show day? So I'll, I'll answer that in two bits, if that's all right. There's, there's the finding of the story. So it could be I go looking for a specific story. And once I find it, I will then read as many versions of it as I, as I can get my hands on. Because as far back as Plato and Socrates, you know, they, they mentioned stories and they, and they still say, you know, back then they're like, and I've heard this other version of it. So there's always been this human thing of many, many versions of a single story. And by reading lots of versions, I get a much fuller much more three-dimensional view of the story because how a story is collected affects the kind of story it ends up being. So if it's a white English man who's collected a story in Ireland in the 1840s, right? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine how different that story would be if it was collected by a local Irish woman in the, you know, in 1910, you know? So you got to look at where you're getting your stories from. So I sometimes I'll spend months with a story before I tell it. Uh, and I'll, I'll walk with it and I'll, it sounds strange, but I'll walk with it and I'll talk with it and I'll ask questions of it. And I sometimes dream about them. So they take, they take over and I make sure I know why, why I want to tell it and what, it, what it's about and how long it'll be and all of that. So there's that work, which can take a couple of days to a couple of months, depending. And then there's show day, which is sacred time. So, 
If I can allow myself the whole day before the performance, I will control what I eat, when I eat. I'll make sure I stretch, preferably for anything for 20 minutes to an hour. I'll do a body warm-up. So after I stretch, I'll do lots of activating exercises. Um, All of this is part of my pre-show ritual, which is what I teach a lot to people as well in any field when they're getting ready to give a talk. So get the body ready, do some breath work, uh, warm up the voice. Once the voice is fully warmed up, singing. So any kind of singing that I like, so I'm not a singer, but singing can be really good for strengthening the voice. And I will probably run the material out loud, uh, possibly to another person, but not in its full form. So I won't do the whole show. I'll just do the bones, make sure I know all the bits that need to happen. And then I'll make sure that I switch my brain off a few hours before so that I'm not stressing myself out right up until showtime. Get into the space early, get a look at the space, check the lights and the sound, make sure all the clothing and everything like that is ready to go. I'll also go and sit in the places where the audience are and I'll sit in as many different seats as I can, check sight lines mm-hmm. and also to get a sense of what they're looking at. And then and then once I'm in the final lead into the show, if I you know, the nerves will be kicking in. So I'll do a little bit more of like releasing adrenaline and some body tapping and different things like that. And then and then showtime. Love that. Yeah, you might have heard the pens going there. (laughs) (laughs) What did she say? Body tapping. (laughs) Well, it's that thing, isn't it? So, like this, this came from a teacher of mine, uh, Michael Murphy, who's a brilliant uh, Irish uh, director, actor, writer, and he talked about sort of getting yourself in the zone through a series of warm ups and doing the same warm ups each time, so that you trick your mind and your mind goes, "Oh, we're doing a show." So you get there. You get into that zone way before you ever get on stage. So you're more than ready to deal with the energy of the audience and the energy of the story. Claire, tell us a little bit about what you'd like your legacy to be. Big question. <laughs> you've, you've created meaningful, impactful moments for thousands of people who all remember having been in that room with you, right? And enjoyed that experience. So if you, you know, 10 to 15 years from now, 30 years from now, <laughs> if you, 50 years from now, you can look back and say, never mind that podcast with those two lovely fellas. <laughs> what, what would you like people to kind of say, Claire Murphy, gee, she was great at that or she was lovely at that? Mm. It's mad, isn't it? When you ask a question about legacy, you immediately start thinking about your own death. <laughs> you not be more your hair trying to you know impact and you create energy for people and no it's it's a good question uh, i was asked the other day by somebody about you know why don't you make more cds you know there's a lot of products that are attached to storytelling and uh, what i what i often make is is live performance with no no proof the impermanence of it so the legacy i leave behind that's really interesting so i've never been asked that so I'm going to just improvise this. One of the things I love is after a show, say it's a show at a festival and a little kid comes up to me, you know, five years. I had this little girl, she was like six years old and she was at the Scary Stories. And she was way too young to be at that show. <laughs> and like her mom had, she was basically controlling her mother. She was quite a powerhouse of a little kid. Uh, she was really lovely, but her mom was like, she said she had to be here. So so I knelt down so that we were eye to eye and we got chatting. And she basically informed me that I had told the scariest story and that I was a good storyteller and why I was a good storyteller. And I asked her to tell me a story. And she proceeded to tell me a story about 
her father dropping his mobile phone down the toilet and having to put his hand in after it. And her mother just lost it. She had never heard this story before. And so I had a little chat with her about becoming a storyteller. She was so brilliant. This kid was so brilliant. So for me, legacy would be having touched somebody's heart in some way or encouraged them in some way. I met a girl in Belgium who's a young teacher and she's about to go out. You know, she's doing her teacher training and she came up to me after a show. These were, these were all 18, 19 year olds, right? So they were really cool and they were too cool to speak, right? So when I asked if there were any questions, they were utterly silent. And I said, well, I'll hang out at the end if you want to come, come up and chat to me. So at the end, about five of them came up. They were asking me different things. And then I caught her eye. She was quite quiet. And she, she caught my eye. And I said, so what's your question? And she said, how do you live a life without shame? Mm-hmm. And I was, I mean, the people around just went, what? And I, 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 knew, I knew what she meant somehow. I just knew what she meant, which was that, you know, on stage, I'll be really goofy or really loud or really, you know, I, 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 I will, as my friend says, I'm not afraid to look ugly on stage. Um, and, you know, this was a group of people in Belgium who had trouble expressing themselves physically or emotionally, most definitely. And I said, well, I'm just not that worried about making mistakes because I've made so many of them. I said, I'm going to get it wrong. And it's more important that I serve the story. She went on to write to me about a week or two later saying that in her final exam, she had decided to use storytelling as her focus. She had told the story I'd given them for five-year-olds. She had told it to a bunch of five-year-olds and it had gone really, really well. She had aced her exam and she was planning on doing more storytelling in her work. So when you ask about legacy, I tell you those two little stories because I, I love watching people step into themselves no matter who they are, when they step in and, and they own their own voice. And it doesn't matter if it's somebody in business or in sports or in science or in academia or it's a five-year-old kid. It's that empowering moment. If they see me do it, they think they can do some aspect of that and then they get a bit stronger. And the other legacy I'd want to leave is a love for, a, a richer, deeper love for Irish mythology and people. So I started telling Irish myth right at the start, 2006. And I was super nervous because, you know, we were all raised on Irish myth. And I thought, no one's going to want to hear this because we were raised on it. But these stories wouldn't leave me alone. And so I ended up telling how could Cullen got his name and, you know, Maka giving birth on the field and all these stories. And the way Irish people responded, this was in Galway, the way Irish people responded was so beautiful. People were so hungry to hear their own mythology. So if I left another legacy, it would be just opening that door back up to our, to our ancient past and making sure it comes alive again. Brilliant. So I have two more questions. The first one is, it's a selfish question, but I'm asking it as it's for the listeners. What's, where can we see you next? I want to see Claire Murphy. Where are you going next? Where am I going next? Well, I don't know. That won't count really because I don't know when this podcast is going up. But I will say that I'll be in Ireland later this year. Uh, I'm performing at Cape Clear Storytelling Festival, which is the first weekend in September. Uh, if you want to go to that, buy tickets soon because it's a very uh, it's a very small island and they limit the number <laughs> and it's limited accommodation. But I will be telling there all weekend, and am I telling anywhere else in Ireland? I mean, I'm telling I'm telling the festivals in England. I'm telling it beyond the border in Wales in July. Uh, I'm doing a show. I, I, I don't know. Are you allowed to curse on your podcast? Of course, of course you are. Of course you are. Yes. Oh, 
okay, Grant, because I do a show called Women Who Gave No Fucks. And uh, it's me and a bunch of other uh, women storytellers. And we're doing that in Bristol. Well, we're doing it all over, actually, over the coming year around England. But we're doing it in Bristol at the start of June. So if any of them happen to be over in England, that that would be a great one to catch. So that's Brilliant. women from uh, myth, history, folklore and legend who uh, gave no fucks about something. Dave, I think that's the first time we've been asked for permission to curse. <laughs> 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 I've been, I see I've been living in England too long you know you have to the next one is what does the next five years hold for you where do you see yourself in five years oh oh my god is this a job interview um, that, would, that would be a small question so. I don't know like I mean I've started working with all kinds of interesting communities right so recently I've started since NASA I've started working a lot with scientists which I absolutely love I've worked a lot with veterans I've worked a lot with you know I've worked I, I'm looking at working with uh, I've started working with firefighters uh, I will be working with paramedics and doctors and that kind of stuff I'd love to work more with uh, the climate change movement and helping the environmentalists tell better stories get them to be more powerful speakers so that's where that work might go I am in the middle of writing a new show, uh, which will premiere this this summer. But five years from now, it's just going to be deeper down the rabbit hole of myth, really. It's going to be, I don't know what the creative muse is going to do with me in the next five years. I don't know what my repertoire will be like. My hope is that if we meet five years from now, I'll still be as excited and curious as I am right now. I have no end goal in mind. I go where the work takes me and uh, I go to communities that I can serve. So... No end goal, but probably a whole new repertoire of stories by then. Nice. Claire, this, this podcast is called Sleepy Perform Repeat. You're very much the epitome of, of performance, right? You, you get up and perform all the time for so many people. I think it's only fitting that we finish with asking, what does high performance mean to Claire Murphy? High performance means respecting what it takes to get on the field and do what you have to do. And that means being pushy sometimes about how much time you need to prepare. And it means pr- protecting that time at all costs. And it means doing what the mind, body and heart need to give the best possible performance in that moment. And not being afraid to do those things each time. And also knowing that even at my best, I'm still going to make mistakes. Claire Murphy, thank you very much for taking the call. Myself and Kieran really enjoyed it. Um, really 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 grateful and a lot of fun and wishing you all the best in your endeavours moving forward thanks very much